When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations. People will faint from fear and foreboding for what is coming. Then they will see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. Stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Be on guard that your hearts are not weighed down with the worries of this life. Be alert at all times, praying that you may stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Earlier this fall, I reminded you that there are four cataclysmic events in Jewish history around which the greatest portion of their literature revolves. The Jews have been in existence for almost 4,000 years, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, continuing to this present day. But those four biggest events are the 400 years of slavery in Egypt, culminating in Moses seeing the burning bush, getting a new name for God, being sent back to Egypt, facing down Pharaoh, and getting the release of God's people. The second major event occurred in 587 before the Common Era, when the Babylonians surrounded the city of Jerusalem, laid siege to it. When the people were running out of food and water, they breached the walls, came pouring in, took everything of value out of the temple, everything of value out of the palace, set fire to both buildings, burned the gates off their hinges, tumbled down the walls, left the city absolutely defenseless, and forced marched the best and brightest away to Babylon. The third major event occurred in the year 70 of the first century of this common era when the Romans destroyed the holy city and the second temple was destroyed. It has never been rebuilt, as you know. On the top of Mount Moriah today, there are two Muslim mosques, no Jewish temples. Jewish worship changed forever at that point. For 2,000 years, it had been a worship system that had many sacrifices, animal sacrifice, but even pouring out special offerings of wine and olive oil, grain offerings brought. And from that point, no sacrificial system in Judaism. None. The synagogue and temples that were built later in other places, like the one here in Tulsa, were places of teaching and preaching and learning, of studying the Torah, but not sacrifice. Fourth tragic event was the Holocaust, of course, where under the Nazi regime, six and a half million Jews died. And much literature has been written about that, and that is an event that will be remembered in Jewish history forever and ever. For much of the fall, we were dealing with that second cataclysmic event, and now we move to the third, the destruction of Jerusalem. Approximately 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jerusalem was destroyed. It was about 15 years after that that Luke wrote his gospel. So he has to try to make some sense out of that horrible fall of the city, the destruction of the temple that would change Judaism forever. And we have this passage today, which is known as an apocryphal passage. Apocrypha meaning revealing, something that ought to give us great insight 
Let's see if it does. Number one, I underlined in verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming. November 5th, just three weeks ago, Saturday morning, I was sound asleep. Suddenly something woke me. My eyes popped open. We have one of those clocks that projects onto the ceiling over our bed. It said 213. At first, I thought, tornado. Our house was shaking. And then immediately my brain said, no, you watched the news last night. There was nothing about bad weather in the forecast last night. Earthquake. I got out of the bed. Gail and I had been through a minor earthquake in San Francisco some years before. I remember how the little lamps beside the bed shook for just a few moments, the whole building, and then it stopped. That's what happened at our house. So I went back to bed. That same night, Gail and I were setting all the clocks back an hour. Daylight saving time had ended. I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth, thinking about all the good sleep I was going to get with this extra hour, and suddenly the house started shaking again. More violently this time, I could hear more noise coming from the kitchen area, and I walked through there pretty quickly. Above our oven and microwave oven, there are some petitions that run vertically, where Gail has cookie sheets and pizza pans, and they were really clattering against each other. Lasted about 45 seconds, and then it stopped. And I went on to bed. Monday, busy, busy day here at the church. Shortly after lunch, Sherry buzzed me and said, one of the television stations wants to interview you. I said, about the earthquake. I think so, she said. And I said, send them over. Let me know when they get here. I've learned that if I don't talk to them, they'll talk to somebody who knows far less than I do. <laughs> so when they arrived, the receptionist buzzed me. I went down. I said, where do you want to do this? Well, where you look scholarly, in front of a lot of books. How about your library? I said, great. So we went up in front of all those books, and they asked me, do you think this is the end time? No, don't think so. But it really doesn't matter what I think. Because even Jesus was asked that question. And you remember he said, you got me. That was something the Father never told me, and only the Father knows that. At 4.30 that afternoon, I went to the dentist where I get my teeth cleaned. Young woman was helping me hang up my coat. I sat in the chair. She put the bib under my chin. She said, Dr. Biggs, I'm so glad you're here today. Could I ask you a question? I said, surely. And she said, you think this is the end time? I said, you know, when I woke up Saturday morning at 2.13 a.m. and the earth was shaking, I thought, this is the end time. I better go get my teeth cleaned. And she said, I'll take that as a no. <laughs> I said, you'd take correctly. And if you went to hear some preacher yesterday who told you it was, you're going to the wrong church. He doesn't know. She doesn't know. They don't know. 
Why do we turn to the Mayan calendar to tell us the end is coming next year? Nobody asked the Mayans. They just started making movies and putting it on television that the Mayan calendar ends next year until they found Mayans who said, well, you know, we got tired of writing. Our calendar really just repeats itself every few centuries. Or we keep looking up Nostradamus as if he had a clue what was going on in 2011. That's not what this passage is about. You need to keep reading. Number two, I underlined, verse 34. Be on guard that your hearts are not weighed down with the worries of this life. We got to go down to Texas for Thursday and Friday. I had not seen my brother and sister since last Thanksgiving. My mother died almost two years ago now, and it makes it a little bit harder when they have time off. They want to go see their children who live out of the city, and we are with our family here. So I was looking forward to it, and we had a good time. I got to see my brother and his family, my sister and her family. Both of our boys had gone down with us. It was fun to be together. As we drove, I thought about my mother, of course. It's different when she's not there. My mother was always such an upbeat person. All of my growing up years, she was such an upbeat, positive person. She'd grown up so miserably poor. Huge, big family of sharecroppers. I do not exaggerate when I tell you that. I remember that old house where my grandparents lived. It was horrible. They worked so hard for half of what they could produce. Then my mother got married to my dad. World War II came along. He was fighting in Patton's Third Army in Europe. Here she was with two little, little, little ones at home in Texas. She was always upbeat, positive. My father came home from the war with a drinking problem. It got worse. That's hard. He would say on Friday, you know, morning at breakfast, why don't we go to a movie tonight when I get home? And we'd all get dressed and wait and wait and wait. He'd come home staggering, falling down drunk. My mother was always upbeat, positive, upbeat and positive. Just wouldn't tolerate anything but upbeat and positive until she started into her dementia. My brother and sister said they would go to her house and she'd be watching one of those news channels that goes 24 hours a day spewing out the worst that's happening in the whole world. There's an earthquake, an earthquake, an earthquake. There's a tsunami, tsunami. There's a tornado. People are being killed. There's a crazy guy that shot 28 people somewhere. She watched it day and night, day and night. They'd come in and turn the channel for her. Hey, Mom, they got some old I Love Lucy reruns. How about Jeopardy? As soon as they'd leave, she'd turn it back to that news channel, and she just went darker and darker. Mark Dara is an attorney here in town. He's also a preacher's son. When I came to Tulsa more than 31 years ago, Mark's dad was one of the district superintendents. Uh, Bishop Millhouse wanted me to meet the cabinet a few days after we got here, and so I was introduced to all 12 district superintendents. Dr. Dwight Darrow was one of them. I came to know him fairly well, appreciated him so very much, but he's had a hard time the last few years. He's now in his 10th year in assisted living, having a really tough time. His wife died some years ago. Mark and Linda, daughter and son, live here. 
Mark writes some devotional materials. Every so often he sends out one of these little newsletters to family and friends, and I got on the mailing list some years ago, and I'm always glad when he sends the letter along to me. Just recently I got one of those. He was bringing an update of his dad. He's not been able to walk in nine years, and he goes months at a time without saying a single word. He's in a nursing home near Mark's office and home, so Mark runs by often. He says whenever he's there visiting with his dad, his dad's saying nothing. There's a woman ran, rumbles around through the, this Alzheimer's unit, you know, saying all kinds of things as if somebody was listening. We have to get the buns. We, we can't have hamburgers without buns. We've got to go get buns. If we're going to be at the lake this weekend, we've got to have buns and burgers. We've got to have buns and burgers. Anybody getting the buns and burgers? That sort of thing. He said recently he was there at mealtime. He said mealtimes are the worst. A third of these people can hardly feed themselves. A third cannot feed themselves. And the other third don't like what's being served. And he said, I was trying to help my dad. And this woman, she started blurting out again. And all of a sudden, she said, I've got a plan. Why don't we all go home and come back for a fresh start in the morning? <laughs> and they can't. But you and I can. Advent is about a fresh start in the morning. Let's all go home and come back fresh for a new start in the morning. We must not be dragged down by the worries of this world. Number three, I underline verse 36. Be alert at all times, praying that you may stand before the Son of Man. Ten days ago, Temple Israel brought an outstanding rabbi to our city, they do this every year for more than 30 years now. Uh, the late Dr. Manny Lubin uh, helped to found this program through Temple Israel. This scholar comes in very much like our Barton Clinton Gordy series, except Dr. Lubin was a great believer in interfaith understanding. So he asked and gave money to help make possible uh, this scholar spending one of those days with Christians who want to know more about Jews. And I've been for 31 years. I, I do not miss. I put it on my calendar a year in advance, so I will not miss it. I've heard outstanding scholars, and the latest one came 10 days ago. She is a woman rabbi from Los Angeles. She grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Her father worked in the garment district there. She said, from the time I was four, I started telling my family, I'm going to be a rabbi. She said, I loved going to synagogue. I said, I'm going to be a rabbi. The only problem was her family were conservative Jews and there were no women rabbis. But at 6 and 8 and 10 and 12, she was saying, I'm going to be a rabbi, I'm going to be a rabbi. Once when she was 16, her mother and father went out for the night to eat. They were mugged on the streets of New York and a crazy man shot her father dead on the street. Her life forever changed when she was 16. But she was very bright she received scholarship to Cornell University. And four years later, she was graduated summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa. And conservative Jews opened their seminary that fall.
to win. And she went to seminary, became a rabbi. After she was married then, she and her husband had a little boy. Two years later, they had a little girl. When the little girl was five, she was diagnosed with a very rare muscular disorder. So this young woman rabbi has had a lot of heartache and troubles in her life. But you know what she talked to us about at that luncheon that day was about Moses, the one whom Jews believe got it more nearly right than any other Jew who ever lived. Started with a burning bush and a new name from, for God, a command to go back to Egypt, plague upon plague upon plague until finally Pharaoh let them go. A pursuing Egyptian army as they came to the Sea of Reeds, the water parted, the Israelites went through, the waters closed on the Egyptian pursuers. Finally, a trek all the way back to Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given. Forty years of leading the people from one watering hole to another. Manna in the daytime when they had nothing else to eat. And then finally, the last paragraph of the scroll of Exodus says, And a cloud settled on the tent of meeting. You remember that all those years, God had led them with a ball of fire at night and a cloud in the daytime. And God had told Moses and his brother Aaron, his sister Miriam, you must have a tent just outside all the other tents of Israelites. That will be the tent of meeting. Aaron may come out. Miriam may come out. You, Moses, may come out. I will talk to you. Come into the tent of meeting. But right at the end of Exodus, as Moses is a very old man, he approached the tent of meeting. The clouds settled right down on it, and Moses could not go in. The rabbi asked us Christians, why not? Why couldn't he? Why couldn't he go in the tent? We all sat there, and then she said, God was too much near. Too much near even for Moses. But read the first line of the next scroll, she said. Leviticus says, And he spoke to Moses from the tent and said again, Moses. And the one outside is being addressed to come inside to God. It began with a burning bush, she said. Not a tree. Just a bush. And some have said, well, if I'd seen such a burning bush, maybe I could have been more like Moses. And she said, <clears throat> one of our rabbis centuries ago was writing Midrash, an explanation that had come to him about that event. And he said, I think the burning bush had always been here. I think it was lighted by the fires of creation. But nobody had ever turned aside until Moses. You have to turn aside. You have to be alert. You have to be observant about what really matters as we come closer and closer to our Lord. Number four, I underlined verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming with dunamis, power, doxa, great glory. Stand up and raise your heads. That's an interesting verb, the one here for stand up. We'll come to it later in the year. 
Way back there in chapter 13, there's a story about a healing. And it says there was a woman who could not stand up, could not lift her head because she was bound by the evil one. And what Luke is saying is, the evil one is not binding you. Lift up your heads. Stand up. Your redemption is drawing near. Clay Angus is a, is a widow, a grandmother who lives in California. She writes devotional materials from time to time. She's recently written about a daughter of a very good friend of hers. She said, I've known this good friend and her daughter all of the daughter's life. I saw her as a little bitty girl. She was so pretty, so cute, so bright. And as she grew up, she just became more of all of that, more beautiful and brighter and brighter, finally received scholarship to one of the great universities of our country. She was gone her whole first year, freshman year. She came home, and she called me one morning, said she'd like to come by and say hello. I said, well, that'd be wonderful. It'd be just about time for a good pot of tea, and I have a few cookies. So she said she arrived, and I was pouring us some hot tea. I got the little platter of cookies. We sat down at the dining table, at the kitchen table, and she blurted out to me, I've dumped this God thing. She said, I could tell she was wanting to be argumentative with me. I just looked at her, took a sip of my tea. And then she went on, you know all that stuff I learned at Sunday school? Well, I've decided none of that's true. I don't believe in God anymore. And Clay said, pity. What? Pity, I said. I'm much older than you. I've had a lot more experiences than you. I can only imagine what my life would have been had I dumped that God thing when I was your age. I was really counting on God to help me be a good wife, really counting on God to help me be a good mother. When I had to say no to one of my children, I prayed it was the right word. When I said yes, I prayed it was the right word. When I said maybe or wait, I prayed it was the right word. I got a call one day that one of my dearest friends had been T-boned at an intersection, was lying near death at the hospital. It would have been a pity if I'd had no one to talk to about that, but immediately I felt I could talk to God about that. Not long ago, my mother was dying. I sat on the side of her bed. The doctors had told us the end was very near, and I, I sort of lifted her into my arms. If all I could have said to her was goodbye, that would have been a pity. But I said with all my heart, Mom, you've held me in your arms. I'm holding you in my arms. And when you wake up next... God's going to be holding you in his arms. And I looked into this young woman's face, and she was tearing up. And she said, I, I didn't think about all that. Advent is a time to think about it.